0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of a series on food and body image, and uh, so much of the country is talking right now about obesity, Michelle Obama's plan, about dieting. And in this context, I wanted to really create um, a space for some really thoughtful conversations and alternative perspectives about the impact of dieting on uh, bodies and self-image. So my guest tonight is Alice Rosen. She'll be talking about compulsive eating. Alice is a mindfulness-based and body-centered psychotherapist with a specialty and a passion for working with eating disorders. Alice does individual psychotherapy and also group therapy for eating disorders in Concord, Massachusetts. She's the author of the CD, The Feeding Ourselves Method, a Guide to Achieving a Healthy Relationship with Food. Welcome to Safe Space, Alice.
1: Hi, Anne. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you.
0: Let's start by um, talking a little bit about your own story, your own relationship with food, and maybe just tell me kind of what happened with you and food.
1: Okay, well, I'll start in high school. Okay. I think in high school I started developing thinking of, I was fat, and uh, tried to restrict my food in in minor ways. That was really before diets were really around, but I still thought I was fat. And, you know, now I knew that was not really about food uh, or my body, but it was about my own lack of self-confidence in my own life and my social life. And then when I got to college, it blossomed as it does for um, an eating disorder arose, uh, because, and I think that happens for many young people because it's the first time Um, no one's controlling you in some way or that you can get food in different ways and and it's just breaking out into into a new uh, aspect of life. So um, I used a lot of food in college. Uh, Again, it uh, manifested as a way to procrastinate because I was very nervous and afraid that I, wouldn't, I didn't even know how to begin to do what I needed to do, like the studying or the paper, and I would put it off. And eating is a very valid, looks like you're doing something. You <laughs> <I> see.
0: So <laughs> it seems like... like it's not procrastination.
1: <laughs> right. And, so, and then it went from there, and through different stages in my life, it increased when I became a strict vegetarian. Um, then my cravings uh, for sweets and carbohydrates increased, because I think my body wasn't meant at that time to be a strict vegetarian and also, you know, healthy foods, no sugar and that type of stuff, so that I had many secret um, binges. And sometimes I had friends who would do secret binges with me, you know, let's go out for dessert. And um, I found myself in the throes of an eating disorder. Um, Also, when... um, when you feel deprived in a lot of ways, some of it was financial. If you could get a bunch of cake, that made you feel better. There's all these different superficial reasons that the eating disorder c- had a good hold on me. Yes, I mean, as I'm listening to,
0: I'm hearing a few. So I'm hearing on the one hand, it was the freedom of being on your own when you were in college. Yeah. And then I'm hearing it, it served as a way to avoid the anxiety of schoolwork. And then also as a kind of way to make yourself feel better when you felt poor or when you felt deprived.
1: Yeah, like food was exciting. Uh-huh. You know, getting a going out for coffee and a muffin. Right, it was a treat. It was a treat. It was a reward. It was a break. It was a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> only only it didn't work. Yeah. And so um, there was a time when I was graduating from graduate school. It was in 1979, and I, I decided to go on a 10-day meditation retreat and knew because of the circumstances that were changing in my life that this would be my last retreat for a long time. And so I decided that this was my last chance to get enlightened. I see. <laughs> and I decided to uh, respect all the rules at uh, the retreat, which were to be mindful in every moment, not just when you're sitting on the cushion or doing walking meditation. And so I decided to eat, eat mindfully, which was not a word then. I mean, it was not a common Household world like mindful eating is now, or maybe not for... At any rate, I, there was no name for it, but uh, there were in, there were instructions for eating, which included intention to pick up your fork, picking up your fork. It's just very slow, mindful, being aware of everything that's happening, putting the food to your mouth, putting the fork down, chewing, 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 tasting, tasting, swallowing, and then intending to pick up the fork again. And my first night there, I just zeroed in on being mindful and in those days he came for an evening meal at first. It started out at 5 o'clock and the evening meal was just an apple and seeds and I started eating the apple in that way and to my surprise when there was still half an apple left I had no intention to pick it up again and I was very surprised because you don't eat just half an apple for dinner and I noticed that I was feeling satisfied that I just did, the apple had no pull, and I couldn't believe it.
0: Had you ever felt satisfied with food before?
1: Not that I could remember. (laughs) I mean, probably as a child, but I don't really remember, because what I was living with mostly was a constant dissatisfaction, a constant needing more. And the the lack of needing more was astonishing to me.
0: I see. So, like, maybe people had told you that existed, but you never really...
1: No one told no. me that existed. I was totally unaware of that. I hadn't really done any research. I was rather unsophisticated. I didn't know anything about disordered eating.
0: I see. So so here you were living it, but you weren't kind of, you hadn't been researching it or naming it to yourself. No,
1: not at all. Oh, I see. And so then I tried that for every meal thereafter, you know, huge breakfasts and like the most delicious lunches where I would normally be um, at the retreat before lunch, my meditation would be, I wonder what's for lunch, I wonder what's for lunch. (laughs) And after lunch, my meditation was, oh, I can't believe I ate so much. You know, the whole cycle over just thinking of food and wanting it. And that all went away. I found myself sublimely satisfied, and I ate less than half than I normally did. I felt light, and I don't usually like to talk about weight because weight is a a consequence of, I mean, loss of weight, but I lost 10 pounds in 10 days.
0: And felt more satisfied than you ever had. More
1: satisfied, and, of course, it's mostly just sitting still, so it wasn't like I exercised or anything.
0: It's such a powerful story, Alice, because it feels like you discovered it on your own. I
1: did, and I thought I
0: did. (laughs) Yeah, so you knew how how brilliant you were, (laughs) like you discovered something. I knew how brilliant my body was. How br- okay? I discovered
1: that my body was brilliant.
0: That seems really important.
1: And I since coined a, a phrase called body intelligence.
0: Yes. Mm. So tell me about body intelligence.
1: Well, specifically about food. I mean, your, your body is a you know, hugely sensory organism on the inside and on the outside. And your body tells you when you're hungry. There are bodily cues which signal hunger not only signal hunger, but signal signal what would satisfy this particular hunger at this particular time, like an, a cellular hunger. And then um, when eating, uh, the body has discriminatory intelligence.
0: Meaning, you know, meaning delicious,
1: what? Delicious or feh, I don't like this. Uh-huh. And then the body very clearly knows when it's had enough. And... At the enough place, what's so wonderful is, like, you can't get higher in pleasure. Like, that's the peak of pleasure, literally. Is enough. And then you say, if I had another bite, I could have more pleasure. If I had another drink, I could get happier, you know, but you can't. Yeah, so that's, what a powerful, I think so many people
0: don't know what enough is.
1: Yeah, and you can only experience it for yourself because enough comes from external messages all the time. You so, can't trust your body is what the external messages say.
0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann and I'm talking to Alice Rosen about um compulsive eating, but right now we're talking about mindful eating. Um you know, part of what strikes me in listening to you is that the, so the body is so wise. The body knows these things and signals them. But it seems to me that you have to really slow down to even hear it or notice that those signals are there.
1: Um you have to eat in an undistracted way. Um, well, it depends. You know, If you grew up just naturally without anyone interfering with your food and you understood your hunger signals, um, you don't have to slow it down to a crawl because it's in you. If you, know what, you know what I mean? Yes. But, but if you have, uh, if you're somewhere on the range of eating disorders, then mindful eating is a powerful healing tool.
0: It's, gra- it's great to know that. I mean, your, your story is very powerful. In listening to, um, in listening to your CD uh, before this, you talked about three ingredients of conscious eating, mindfulness, slowing down, and also chewing your food fully. And I wondered if you could say something about that third one.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the mouth is equipped with teeth. And I believe they're supposed to be used, and um, there's different types of teeth right there's the biting teeth and the grinding and there's the grinding teeth and um if you chew your food, first of all, you start to break down the food and and that which is supposed to be digested, you know the simple sugars, the digestion starts, and by breaking down your food um your body can receive it in a less stressful way and it slows down, well, it's not meant to slow down the eating. It just helps you be discriminating. Uh-huh. Um,
0: right, I mean, it gives you enough time to notice if you want more, if you're liking what you're eating, if you're liking how you're feeling.
1: Yes, and it just seems disrespectful to me to just take the whole thing and just, you know, like Homer Simpson it, you know. <laughs> 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 I right. mean, um, the che- this food should be savored.
0: Yes. Um, So many people that I talk to who eat compulsively tell me that they eat so quickly. They just throw it down and don't enjoy really any of it.
1: And they, they don't taste it. And we've done many exercises with people to eat their favorite, favorite food that they feel like they can't control. Mm -hmm. And when they eat it mindfully, a few different things happen. One thing happens is, ugh, I don't really like it. (laughs) Or that, like if it's potato chips, oh, that's all chemically or salty, too salty, you know. Or the other thing is they absolutely enjoy it and get to that peak of enjoyment and discover that there's a lot left and they don't need it. Yeah. So eating slowly allows you to get exactly what your body wants. You know, listening to you, it makes it
0: sound so simple, Alice. But of course, <laughs> you know, it seems like working with
1: people therapeutically, it's not quite that simple. Oh, yeah. There's another part here. What? <laughs> but this is a simple part. This is a very simple practice. But yes, then there's tremendous resistance.
0: So before we get into the resistance, although I'm interested in that, I actually want to spend some time first talking about dieting. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that really struck me about the work you do is it's so clear that you are this is a non-diet approach. Yeah. And I'm interested, you know, we're, we're a country where m- probably billions of dollars are spent on dieting. Yeah. There's a whole folk an anti-obesity campaign that's yeah. largely focused on diet and exercise. Tell yeah. me what your own kind of critique of the dieting approach is.
1: Well, I think the dieting approach is one of the major causes of eating disorders in the first place. Um giving someone the message that their body is out of control and that has to be controlled by external edicts and rules is, um, a recipe for rebellion. Um, it, it simply doesn't work. And deprivation, deprivation of foods causes rebellion. And, um, not eating enough causes rebellion.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, one of the things you said is that most people report that the very first time they binged was right after a diet.
1: Yes. Yes. So deprivation, and I'd like people to think about that who are listening. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other thing you said that really struck me was you said that, you know, if you deprive the body, the body will eat to store food, yep. both in terms of eating more, but also in terms of the metabolism actually slowing down. Yes. So there's this way that you're really shooting yourself in the foot. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But then, so say a person really is very heavy and it's causing medical problems for them. How? What would be a healthy way for that person to begin to get to maybe the healthier weight that their body was meant to be at without
1: depriving themselves, without dieting? Well, I think here's the problem right here in your question. Okay, good. I think the problem is, what is your relationship with food in your body? It's a relationship problem. Okay, keep talking. And um, when you st- as soon as you start to talk about weight, oh, I have to lose weight, the pressure's on, and it's, a, it's the sabotage you just talked about. Yeah. So I think it should always be, what is your relationship with food? And if food were, you know, how do you treat food? How do you feel around food? Is are you at peace with food, or is it always a struggle? Does food? Do you feel like food dominates you? Do you try to dominate food? Are you are you satisfied in this relationship? And what we're really trying to do is repair that relationship.
0: And I mean, certainly this. So is the idea that. And again, I understand this is still a very kind of medical model, weight-focused question, so I, I acknowledge that. But is the idea that if a person works to repair their relationship with food so that it doesn't become one of deprivation or control, that, and if they just really focus on what their body's intelligence is about what they want and what's enough, that they will kind of naturally
1: come to what's healthy for them? I believe that. Now, that doesn't mean that. I mean, certainly, any health, any lifestyle, healthy lifestyle includes moving your body, and there's 5,000 different ways to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from from dancing to going to a gym. Um, uh, but if you have an eating disorder, um, then I think it's very important. If you don't have an eating disorder, you might hear from someone, "Oh, do you know you've been eating that food, and you know that it." You know, doesn't process well in your body. And can say, "Oh, thanks for telling me. I won't have it anymore." Right, right, right. <laughs> you can't tell someone with an eating disorder not to eat something because what? Because well, yeah, they might it. be good for a while. Then they'll just fall back. You know, they'll fall off the wagon again. It's because it's really, um, and then you're making it about food, and it's not really about food. It's really about more vulnerable states. It's that the food is, as you said, rewarding, comforting, distracting. Uh, protecting uh, from some very vulnerable feelings. I had just had a conversation this afternoon with a client, and she was uh, with her husband. They were talking about the upcoming baby, and they had some kind of difficult discussion, and the way he was talking to her reminded her of her her father who abandoned her, Mm -hmm. and immediately she started thinking about food and then had a binge. So it really isn't about, oh, you shouldn't eat marshmallows. It's about... Um, when this awful feeling of abandonment comes up, I gotta stop it, and and I said, "Did it work?" And she said, "Yes, <laughs> you know, it worked in that moment." But then she felt like crap in the morning. Right. So it's
0: really a way of of coping with unbearable feelings. Yes. With pain. With pain. Yes. And yeah, so rules. Basic. Right, and rules don't take care of pain. In I other words, if you, you got a, good, that's a good. Because what people do is they try to have food rules, yeah. thinking that's going to help them. But if the pain is yeah. still there, they're still going to want to eat to avoid it.
1: Yes. So using food and eating disorder is a way of managing unbearable
0: Yes. Well, that pain. makes sense. Um, <clears throat> So that brings me to another point you said, you know, if you tell a person with an eating disorder that they can't eat something, it's a recipe for trouble. You use the phrase legalizing foods.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I wondered if you could tell me about what do you mean by
1: legalizing foods and why is that important? Okay. So let me start with a caveat because the people will forget, people listening will not remember what I said. Okay. When you are hungry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got that? When you are hungry, got it. When you listen to your body on a cellular level, um, what it wants is valid, and you and you can trust it. And then you can eat it mindfully and get just what you need to satisfy that, and therefore all foods are legal. Okay. So right. So the the
0: <laughs> I'm anticipating the hue and cry in response. So if Someone might say, yes, but my, if I pay attention to my body, what it will say is ice cream, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Right,
1: and I will say, I, I doubt that. I will say, let's try that. Let's wait till next time you're hungry. I do this in my workshops. I do these intensive workshops where hunger arises. Yeah. And we settle down into a quiet place and really listen to what the body wants. And nine out of ten times when it's like, you know, noon. They're not. They're not humming, is, is the word. Just a, you know, a resonance. They're not resonating for ice cream.
0: I see. So you're saying if they really listen inside, what they're gonna, what their body is gonna want, is not gonna be something unhealthy for them. No.
1: You, you never know. I mean, it could really be like you could go out to dinner one night and you could say, you know what? I don't want any main course. I'm really keying on that key lime pie. Yep. And I think I'll have an appetizer and key lime pie for dinner. Yes. And that's and that's just fine. So I don't want to even use the word unhealthy. <laughs> okay, right. No, I, what I hear is your approach is
0: very unjudgmental and very trusting. That it's non-legalistic. It's non-rule oriented.
1: Right. But if I ate something and then I started feeling sick or my tongue started feeling like it had a rash on it, yes. I, you know, I would say, well, oh, you know that's not quite delivering. Yeah. I thought I liked this and wanted this,
0: but I don't really want it. It's so striking because as part of the series I've also interviewed someone about um OA, you know, overeaters anonymous. Mm-hmm. And s- people who really feel like sugar or white flour, you know, has got mm-hmm. to be off the table, or at least it has to be off the table in the beginning. And do you have a sense that there's sort of a process like maybe in the beginning when you're trying to break free from an intensely obsessive um, compulsion with food—that you need to avoid certain foods in the beginning, or do you feel like I don't think so? From start to finish, it can't be legalistic like that.
1: I think from start to finish. Now I know uh, most of the people I know who have done OA have, uh, you know, lost their eighty pounds and then gained a hundred and twenty back. But I do know one or two people who feel very safe in that approach. Okay, but they're very structured by that, you know. Yeah. So the I str- couldn't do that. <laughs> I like to, you know, feel in control of that. Um so no
0: I I trust the body. It sounds like you do. It's it's a it's sort of like a scary exciting thought to think you really can trust it.
1: You really can. But if now I say if you're eating and you're not hungry something's eating you and also if you're not eating when you are hungry equally something's um consuming you um it's very important to look at what's eating you. Because
0: so what, that's what do you mean the other by stream.
1: that? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Um, to look into what what is going on, what you're trying to protect, what is so vulnerable in there, and, and try to heal that. That's the that's the psychological edge of you know. There's two streams here. Maybe they're parallel. I believe mindfulness is essential, mm-hmm. but it's very important if someone has t- deep trauma. You know, this approach isn't going to work like a lark.
0: Right, or like the example of the person you just talked about where she had this very painful loss of her father, mm-hmm. and when that came up, she would eat. So she has to deal with that.
1: Yes, and this this woman has an extreme eating disorder. Uh-huh, extreme. right. Extreme. Um, and so we're working very, very slowly. And she and many of my clients are working with nutritionists. And at her stage where she is, her nutritionist, even though she's a mindfulness-based nutritionist, is helping her create meal plans, because her eating disorder will just tell her to do random things. Yes. (laughs) And so, you know, you just have to be very respectful of where someone is. Right. And create the process that fits them. It's not a cookie cutter.
0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm speaking with Alice Rosen about compulsive eating. So I want to turn now to kind of concrete situations where you might try to help someone mm-hmm. and i first want to ask it as a, as a parent you know so many people were brought up needing to finish their plate mm-hmm. being told that they shouldn't waste food and there were children starving in africa kind of thing and um and it really, really I, my sense of that is it helps the child lose touch with their internal cues yes. about hunger and satiety um but i'm curious you know when you have a child that really wants dessert and doesn't want to eat their main course and has two bites and then says they're full, what, what do you, what's your advice to parents in that situation? Do you say you have to have five more bites before you can have dessert, or is that doing the very thing that isn't helpful?
1: I, I think giving a child the message that they can't trust their body from the get-go is a huge mistake. Um, there's a woman, um, Ellen Satter. She wrote, How to Get Your Child to Eat But Not Too Much and the uh, Secrets of he- Feeding a Healthy Family. She's right on the edge of, um, she does a lot of research with parents and children. So just so th- to get that name out there because you can yes. hit a- But she believes that, um, she calls it the division of responsibility. The parent's job is to provide that food. You know, you provide a good, attractive, <laughs> uh-huh. healthful meal. Yeah. And the j- kid's job is to eat it. And once you start getting into some kind of contention, I mean, it's all control issues and manipulation. So even, <laughs> even, you know, take one more bite is a control issue or making the airplane go in your mouth to please. Many kids fall into, I please my parents. Yes. I had one client who said, I, you know, they, I was very skinny. They made me eat. I pleased, pleased them. And all of a sudden at puberty I got large and all of a sudden they said, stop. Right. And I went, what do you mean? I was pleasing. You know, it just backfired. Um, so the best thing is to trust your child, and I would not differentiate dessert. And I don't know what this dessert thing is like, <laughs> but you know, I would put it all on the table together as a buffet. And, and and so, if
0: your child just wants to eat ice cream, ice cream, pasta, pasta, that's it. That's it. You think
1: that's going to happen forever? Number one, and I think that's that's a. I had that discussion again today too. I, why would your child want to do that? First of all. Taste, different kids develop at different times, so they're literally their taste buds and however their body works. So they might need bland carbos for a while.
0: Right. So you're really saying trust the kid because so many messages are, your kid will only want sugar. You have to really no. take charge of this. You're the one with the judgment. No.
1: And don't dumb <laughs> down. Like, don't give your kids uh, child food, <laughs> you know, yeah. processed things that look like bunnies or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Don't dumb down your kids' appetite.
1: No, you should give them real food of obviously um to suit them. And 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 it should be good food. It it I mean Yes.
0: Now that's very helpful. I want to ask you another question because we're going to have to stop in a minute. You know, you are, um, you're a professional in the field. You do all kinds of teaching and writing and speaking about this. And I'm struck at your openness talking about your own struggle. And I'm curious, uh, since this is a show about subjects that are hard to talk about, was it hard for you to really be so open about yourself in the beginning? Um, you know, did you have to work through shame to really speak about this yourself?
1: I, 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 I wasn't shame when I had the disorder, but um, this epiphany was so um, amazing to me that I was little. I felt very excited about it. Yeah, that's um, the
0: sense I got. And it sounds like you didn't pathologize yourself to begin with. Like you went to that retreat, not even. Identifying as someone with an eating disorder, oh
1: no, I had no idea. I never heard the word eating disorder then,
0: yeah, so you weren't starting out from a very pathologized oh, what's so I'm so bad this is so wrong about me to begin with
1: Not really, but I certainly had shame about you know secret eating and uh-huh. and um you know, I always remember holiday parties were so um so nervous to go to holiday parties because I would eat everything, those kinds of things it was It was a big burden, but i I, I have a tremendous faith in the power of mindfulness. I really hear that. It really burned it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one,
0: all it took was half an apple. <laughs> 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 Times 10 days, yeah. I know, and you were changed. So we're going to have to stop in a minute, but I want to uh, ask you if you could tell people what your website is yeah. and also about your um, your CD. So if people want to get it, they
1: can. Yeah. Um, my website is theconsciouscafe.org okay remember the the um and i have created this 4 cd package because i felt like people are so alone and i've created all the exercises and guided and guided um exercises for people to do this on their own or with help of their therapist and it's it's pretty comprehensive um
0: I've been and listening to it. Of a guide. Yes, I've been listening to it and finding it so powerful. I really encourage people with an interest to take a look at it. Alice, thank you so much for being my guest oh, on Safe Space. you're very welcome. It's really been a pleasure. So this is Dr. Anne at Safe Space. I've been mm-hmm. talking to Alice Rosen about compulsive eating and the role of mindfulness in recovering from it. If you would like to email me with a request or a suggestion for a future show, please do so at drann at com. I also want to let you know we do have a new website for the show, which is Safe Space Radio. Um That is www.safespaceradio.com. And all shows from the very beginning, it's now 79 shows are on there, which you can listen to. And uh, you can also email them to a friend, download them from iTunes. So please get on to www.safespaceradio.com and check it out. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.